Hello, and welcome back to the Bentley Prairie Museum podcast. My name is Alexander, and I'm here as your host for this episode. This podcast has been established alongside a temporary exhibition called Bentley Prairie's Bunker, Defending Britain from Nazi and Nuclear Threat. Bentley Priory Museum is currently running this project to investigate its top-secret underground bunker, which was used both in the Second World War and the Cold War periods. This project wouldn't have been possible without the funding given to the museum by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. This podcast will be highlighting some of the exciting stories of the personnel who worked down in the bunker. This episode is called Intercept, We will learn more about the vital role of RAF Bentley Priory and the bunker in the Cold War intercepting the bear. So I invite you to sit back and listen as we are joined by Tim, a project volunteer who will give you an overview into RAF Bentley Priory's role in the Cold War, helping to intercept enemy aircraft in the United Kingdom's airspace. Bentley Priory became the home of the Royal Air Force's Fighter Command in 1936 and was at the centre of what became known as the Dowding system, generally accepted as the world's first integrated air defence system. Integrated in the sense of connecting systems for early warning and tracking of enemy aircraft through a command and control chain to the means of defence, including not just fighter aircraft, but over time, anti-aircraft guns, searchlights, barrage balloons, and eventually ground-to-air missiles all with the intention of intercepting, identifying, and if necessary, shooting down the intruding aircraft. The Dowding system may have been the first, but it endures as the basis of air defence systems to this day. The early radars of what was called the chain home system evolved into the complex and sometimes mobile air defence radars of today. As technology moved on, the organisation changed in shape and structure. The Cold War, a standoff between the Western powers and the communist bloc, principally the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR, developed initially in the aftermath of the Second World War in the late 1940s, and was to continue until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The key feature was the so-called arms race between the main powers, focused upon the growing arsenals of nuclear weapons. The nuclear threat made periods of heightened tension which occurred at points throughout the Cold War, something to be feared. Retired Air Marshal Cliff Spink has quite a unique perspective on Bentley Priory. As a noted fighter pilot and former squadron commander, he had served at the sharp end of air defence. Later in his career, he became Senior Air Staff Officer at 11 Group, tasked with UK air defence and headquartered at RAF Bentley Priory. Commandant of the Royal Observer Corps and later Air Officer Commanding or AOC of 1118 Group. Now he serves as Chair of the Trustees of Bentley Priory Museum. I had the privilege and great pleasure of interviewing Cliff for the museum's oral history project during which we explored many aspects of his connection with Bentley Priory. In the following clip from that interview, Cliff offers us an overview of the air defence task from RAF Bentley Priory to the pilot sitting in the cockpit of a fighter aircraft. 
the doubting system, which we can go back to in a, in a minute, which of course I uh, is very central to the museum. Um, that first integrated air defense system where they were using radars and Royal Observer Corps, uh, all the communications coming into a central area, which was then that was filtered, indeed it went through a filter room, all the information fused to, to make it a, a sensible air picture for the commander to interpret and then allocate forces accordingly. That, that, had, that had developed obviously as time went on. Um, and indeed, when I was the AOC, I had all of what we called the ground environment stations, all the radar stations. Now, they didn't have the numbers that they had when they had the chain home stations, you know, but the, the radars had advanced quite considerably. And so that we had um, sector stations like Bulmer and Buckham radar stations, major ones, who fed in to Bentley Priory. Um, and, and indeed, we had remote radars as well. So that all that communications, the way, the general philosophy, how it was done back in 1940 um, by Dowding and his team, hadn't changed really very much. The equipment and the tape capabilities of both the ground environment and the airplanes had improved enormously. And, and so we were going through the Cold War period then. And uh, when we were, for instance, uh, on exercise or scrambled, you went on to a telebrief system um, and you would, the airplane would be plugged into a landline, which used to tick away. And on the other end of that was your sector controller, master controller, which in turn he was being managed by places like Bentley Priory and from the bunker at Bentley Priory. So you were always very mindful of the, um, the way the command chain was working. And now we will listen to Douglas Chowns, who was attached to the tactical intelligence operations in the bunker and was responsible for setting up an in-house design department. As a result of his role, Dougie became known as the artist during his time at Bentley Priory. He talks about what life was like in the operations room. The bridge um, above the plotting table, we nicknamed, or, or was nicknamed, not we didn't create a name, it existed for years, but it was called the Goldfish Bowl because of the officers inside. Um, quite daunting if it, something was going on, an exercise, say it, two or three o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, plotters working away in in 11 group area, channel area would have maybe oh, a, heap, a heap of activity going on. And uh, uh, as I say, it was, it was a very strenuous and had to have full concentration, total silence, rubber floors. And a plotter would look up and see um, three or four air staff and, and, and see the actual gold on his arms as, as he was looking down, uh, WAF officers too, and uh, all watching what you were doing and listening to what you were getting in your ear and seeing it being uh, displayed. It could be quite daunting for somebody and uh, <laughs> you, you could lose it for a few seconds, but... 
I think they fully appreciated that. It, it was it was highly stressful uh, work. I, I was even involved with colour scheming the war room, which um, I proposed, uh, having learned about these things, that colour is very important, and a pale green in, in the war room actually uh, reduced stress for those on the plotting table in, in extremely important positions like the south coast of England, the, the Channel. Uh, a plotter could be handling up to 16 tracks and it, and they would only have a one-way uh, instruction that uh, they had a, an earphone, they couldn't answer, couldn't ask a question. They, they would normally get their speed up to about one plot in four seconds, including changes. So they were often listening to the next plot when they were dealing with the previous plot. Uh, they became automated. In the following clip, our interviewee, Dougie, makes reference to the Suez Crisis. The Suez Crisis of 1956 has to be set against a background of Cold War concern about the growth of communism and the influence, in particular, of the USSR and fears of escalating tensions between Israel and the Arab nations. A particular concern for the West was the security of the Suez Canal a vital trade route and artery for the passage of tankers carrying oil to help power its economies. With a refusal of the United States to sell arms to Egypt, Egypt turned to Czechoslovakia to supply Russian military equipment. In turn, the US withdrew financial support for a major Egyptian infrastructure project, a move followed by Britain. Egypt responded late in July 1956 was seizure of the assets of the largely French and British-controlled Suez Canal Company. Diplomatic efforts to resolve the growing crisis failed and conflict broke out on the 29th of October 1956 when, in a secretly agreed move, Israeli forces attacked in the Sinai Peninsula. A pre-arranged ultimatum was given by the British and French governments requiring the cessation of fighting and laying down other conditions. On the 31st of October, Britain and France began a campaign against Egypt, codenamed Operation Musketeer, with reconnaissance flights followed by airstrikes against airfields. Ground forces became involved on the 5th of November with a parachute assault, followed the day after by a beach assault. Meanwhile, the United Nations and the US in particular was critical of the action and ordered a ceasefire to come into effect at midnight on the 6th of November, 1956. Hostilities had lasted barely more than a week, but the action was to influence international relationships for many years afterwards. We, we were 24 hours a day um, watching totally the skies of Britain and Western Europe, during which was, in my time, 1956, 56, 57 was Cold War. Um, Suez was a crisis point, um, not realised by the general public, but in, indeed it was. We were always concerned of any aircraft originating northwest in the, in the Baltic or Scandinavia area and coming through into the, into the Atlantic. Uh, usually they kept outside of the uh, outside of um, 
the Scottish islands uh, of Lewis and, and uh, South Euston, but um, if there was a westerly blowing, sometimes they got blown in and we certainly intercepted them because aircraft were on two minutes readiness, which meant that pilots were sitting in the aircraft at the end of the runway, ready to be hooked up and they could be airborne in two minutes. So Britain was at that state of readiness. By the 1970s, RAF Bentley Priory, as headquarters of 11 Group, was at the head of the United Kingdom's air defences, with its ground environment system embracing radars and the vital communications links, enabling the detection and tracking of aircraft approaching the UK, and the control and direction of defending fighters. In the 1970s, Martin Battle was a fighter controller based at RAF Saxevoort, an RAF radar station on the island of Unst in the Shetland Islands. In the following clip, he mentions RAF Buchan in Aberdeenshire, then a master radar station, which would have ordered the launch of fighters which were, and are, being held ready on quick reaction alert, or QRA, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. QRA aircraft launch within minutes of receiving the order. Modern day fighter pilots emulating their predecessors in the Battle of Britain, scrambling to meet the threat. The term Russian bear is sometimes used when referring to the country or the former USSR. In RAF language, it has a more literal meaning. For bear is the reporting name of a Russian long range bomber and reconnaissance aircraft which was commonly intercepted by RAF aircraft around the UK during the Cold War. In the example given by Martin, once the QRA aircraft are launched by Buchan, control was handed over to a controller at Saxevoord. And Martin takes us to the point of intercept, the reason the whole system existed. This was 1972 to 74, I was there. It was arguably, I wouldn't say at the height of the Cold War, but it was when the Cold War was really running quite uh, quite strongly. The Russians were very active, uh, we were very active, and Russian aircraft were penetrating UK airspace on a fairly regular basis. Having been up to that point uh, on stations where you, when you were controlling, there was a there was somebody in some role. Uh, supervising you, somebody leaning over your shoulder. At Saxaboard, there wasn't. You went on duty. Uh, the controlling MRS, Master Radar Station, was at Buchan. That was a few hundred miles south. They couldn't see what I was doing. They couldn't hear what I was doing. They handed over the fighter to me, plus any other assets that were handed over. And it was up to me to intercept the Russian. And intercept Russians, I did. A few came close to us but we never got beaten. So, uh, but it really was, um, it, it was an exciting time because with QRA, um, you didn't know what was going to happen. It wasn't canned, you know, you were, you were operating against what was the enemy. Uh, you were using aircraft which were live armed, um, or every mission we did was, uh, you are to intercept, identify and shadow. You know, and every time we got close to a Russian, we told the pilots to make sure their weapons were set to safe. 
the aircraft, the QRA fighters we were using were Lightning Mark 6s. Beautiful aircraft to control. Uh, it was very fast. It could climb to something like 60,000 feet in a minute. So you know, it, was, it had a max speed of about 1.5, although it didn't stay airborne at that speed very long. Um, but it, it was a single-seater fighter. So it really was, you know, the pilots loved it. Uh, we enjoyed controlling it. It, could, it had a very poor airborne intercept radar compared to the ones today. Uh, so the control, your controlling was having to be fairly accurate to make sure that you got them, you know, to got the pilot into a position where he could com complete, his, uh, you know, complete his intercept. As you can hear, the bunker played a vital role in defending the United Kingdom. These oral history clips have been recorded during interviews carried out by the fantastic volunteers who have dedicated their time to help bring these previously unheard voices to life for the first time. So we are joined by Arusa, who will tell you more about her time as a volunteer so far. I found the project from merely just from looking around to see what kind of experience I could get with the museum work because I am doing an undergraduate in history and I am quite interested in working in uh, exhibition work after I do my master's. This exhibition in particular really stood out to me because I'm someone who really, I think, um, has focused a lot on early modern history and a bit of medieval history. And so I haven't really quite, um, I mean, apart from in first year, I haven't really touched on modern uh, history, particularly the Battle of Britain, which is such a, a poignant battle, and yet I hadn't really known much about it. So, yeah, I thought it was a really cool exhibition, and also the fact that like I have this kind of like dual perspective, which is like the Battle of Britain and also it being an RAF headquarters during the Cold War. I thought that was really interesting. So I started off with doing some uh, research work, looking into the Battle of Britain primarily because. The idea was I'd go on to interviewing and I really wanted to interview Battle of Britain veteran. I did do some Cold War research and I did end up interviewing a Cold War kind of expert and I, I didn't mind that at all. It was really interesting. So yeah, with the research, I'd say that it was, it was interesting because it wasn't really like a university sort of research. Like there were definitely applicable skills, but I think the fact that I was looking at the history of a building and and kind of like realizing I think the importance of this place as something that is related to the Battle of Britain and Cold War, I think it was a bit more kind of personal rather than just reading about the Battle of Britain and the Cold War, like online or in a, in a history textbook. So yeah, I really did enjoy the, the researching, but I think my favorite part would have had to have been compiling like my questions and doing the kind of oral history training in preparation for my interview because I felt like I learned a lot from those oral history training sessions that we had and I thought they were very comprehensive and interactive and fun I really enjoyed those yeah then I, I interviewed and because it was my first interview <laughs> it was very nerve-wracking I mean I'm glad I've had the experience though it was was it was very fun and it was great and I think the the people that I've worked with like Chloe and even the other volunteers were just very lovely and so yeah in terms of skills I've gained I'd say 
that I think I've got better at kind of like pinpointing research uh, in, in a focused way to look at what I need to look at for like if I want to interview someone or if I'm looking at research for an exhibition and then also looking at the exhibition itself, which is a skill that I didn't really have before, like how one might put together an exhibition and considerations of audience and aesthetics. Um, I thought seeing that at a practical level was really cool. I hope you enjoyed joining us as we have learned more about the vital role of RIF Bentley Prairie and its bunker. The museum is closed due to the ongoing restrictions in England, but the museum is currently scheduled to open again on Friday the 4th of December, so I hope you can visit soon, although the exhibition will be continuing into spring 2021. I also hope you can join us for our next podcast episode called The Artist on the 11th of December. This episode will feature a painting in the bunker that is currently on display in the exhibition. It was painted by Dougie, who we heard from in this episode. We will explore the story behind the painting and find out more about what life was like down the hole. So until then, take care. Thank you.